Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-D-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just in March, the Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society partnered with Kennesaw State University's School of Art and Design to create a new garden sculpture at the William Root House in Marietta, honoring the memory of enslaved people living in Marietta before the end of the Civil War. The piece will be unveiled this Saturday. Before the sculpture was finished and funding was still incomplete, I spoke with Trevor Beeman, Executive Director of Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society, and the sculptor Pete Birch, Later this hour, they'll tell us about the William Root House and its new commemorative artwork. First, the virtual conversations about jazz and other distractions returns this week from the Hammonds House Museum in Atlanta's West End. Former jazz radio host and founder of the notorious jazz website, Carl Anthony will lead the discussion. This month's event delves into the fashion of jazz. Fashion designer and educator Asanya Davidson and author Alfonso McClendon will be Carl Anthony's special guests. And all three of them joined our senior producer, Kim Drobes, recently via Zoom. Here, Carl explains the origin of the virtual program. It originated with a conversation I had with Leatrice Elsie, who was the former director of the Hammond's House Museum in Atlanta. And it started at the beginning of the pandemic, and she wanted to keep her audience engaged and she asked me if I wanted to do a jazz show and you know we put our heads together and came up with a show that I had started when I was on the air called conversations about jazz and other distractions which was an interview segment that I used to do I said you know but we need to talk not only to musicians we need to talk to the people that are behind the mic because nobody's focusing on the people who are out of work other than the people that are in front of the audience And she agreed, and that's how this show actually came about. 
That makes sense. And what a great idea. I was wondering, why did you decide to have jazz fashion as your conversation topic this month? It was because I saw a need to talk about the impact that Black folks have had on the fashion industry, which is a narrative that is seldom told. And when you look at the fashions that jazz musicians and vocalists wore, you saw the impact that it had on the community and the nation at large, you know, especially during the Jim Crow period when we couldn't shop in white establishments. So we had to create our own fashion sense, which we did as a culture and as a community, you know, and fashion dictates status. It also dictates competence. It also dictates how you look to other people. It's, it's the first statement that you make before you even open your mouth. And, you know, looking at fashion over the years, jazz basically set the standard for the outfits that a lot of R&B groups had. You know, we were all dressed up. We didn't go out slumming. You know, when we went out, we got dressed. We were in our Sunday best, you know, Friday night. It went to the cleaners Saturday morning so we could wear it to church Sunday morning. So when you look at uh, those things, you see how big an impact that fashion had on jazz and, and the performers and the audience. So I thought it was just a good topic to cover. Absolutely. So let's get into the fashion Asanya, as a designer and an educator, how do you encourage your students to express non-visual influences like music into their design work? I really don't have to do much. They do it themselves. The young folks that are coming up, they're all really big in expressing themselves through fashion and non-traditional fashion, especially in male fashion right now. There's this cross-gender space, so they see what the celebrities are wearing, the guy is wearing pearls and he's wearing long earrings and, you know, he's the number one uh, person on the charts. That's usually enough encouragement for them to know that they can do the same thing, especially if that person is of color and is, you know, very comfortable in their skin and, and, and very, you know, okay with showing that they can wear whatever they wear, what would be, you know, traditionally be considered feminine or, or maybe conservative and wear it in such a comfortable way that our students aren't, they don't need any more encouragement from us. They... <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful time for kids to come of age. That's just, it really is. Just it really awesome. is. All right, Alfonso, in your book early on, uh, your book, Fashion and Jazz, you give examples of detailed record keeping of musicians' clothing purposes. Can you explain why this was so important? So one particular artist that I mentioned is Mary Lou Williams, and she was a pianist, and she kept meticulous records of her dress. So she kept receipts. And this is such valuable information. All of her records are housed at the Institute of Jazz Studies at Rutgers. On her receipts, she wrote if it was for work, if it was a concert, if it was for an interview. So this wonderful record keeping, because often what's lost in the history is where did jazz artists buy their clothing? Who made their clothing? Were they Black designers? It's important for us to know, you know, how they had access to these garments, what the meaning of the garments was, um, what was the price of the garments. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I can see its importance now as a historian looking at them. Do you have any idea why it was important 
for her to originally keep such detailed records? Part of it was for business, just business reasons and getting reimbursement for purchases. Oh, that makes sense. We know nowadays that a lot of the um, performers have run into trouble with finances. So Mary Lou Williams should be one to look to of how to do it properly and like keeping receipts of everything <laughs> you purchase, making sure that the record company pays you for those items. The other value, which I forgot to mention for us is those of us who study fashion and its meaning and its role is that we're able to then to look at what was purchased, you know, what was the reason? Um, was she purchasing fur? Was she purchasing silk dresses, beaded dresses? And especially fur, it sh showed the power of a woman at that time. Um, she was a pianist in a very male-dominated profession. So um, she definitely had their respect, but she was one of few women. And she was making sure that also that her business was always correct and accurate and that she didn't make as many mistakes as some other artists might have. Well, she sounds like a really smart cookie. Asanya, we touched on this briefly talking about your students, but obviously by today's standards, the clothing of the jazz aides looks really, really formal. Do you have any idea why those standards changed over time and what influences society as a whole gained from that? Oh, that's a big <laughs> question. Isn't it though? <laughs> I mean, you know, fashion is just a symptom of society. It's where women are in the workforce. You, you know, I, I always talk about the 80s with the shoulder pads and sort of mimicking the man's suit because, you know, we were out in the workforce. This next generation does not care. <laughs> and I think with that not caring, a lot of the rules get thrown out, you know, as far as the length of the skirt and what's considered conservative and what's considered proper and what's considered scarlet letter type garment. Part of it is because there isn't that deep awareness of the past, which in itself kind of sad, but the other part of it is that they don't have the weight of the past on them as well. You know, there are some trends right now. I think there's a cottage trend right now where girls are looking a little bit like the 30s, 40s. And when you don't have concern towards society as far as restrictions and what can and cannot do, then their way of expressing yourself is going to be very loud and very, very obvious. I love that. I'm going to get you to follow up on the term cottage. Is that like Little House on the Prairie cottage? Yeah. So there's this trend. It's been on my periphery and it's gender fluid. And that's the part that I think has to be understood about this next generation. They're not playing by those rules at all. The colors and the fabrics, they're definitely not interested in being told like, you know, guys don't wear this or girls don't wear that or wearing heels is for X, Y, Z. And I always think that's very interesting because heels initially were worn by men and then women took over the trend in an attempt to sort of give themselves a little bit more power in society, but they don't have any restrictions. You just touched on fabric very gently. Alfonso, can you discuss a little bit about the importance of fabric in jazz fashion? I think in the 1920s, which is the period that is most identified by fans of jazz as its heyday, the flapper dress, during that time period, we start to see women start to wear their skirts higher, kind of passing on from the Victorian period and really challenging dress. And we know during that 1920s, women gained the right to vote. So the 1920s is really important about the bias cut dress. So we think about silks that are cut on the bias, they're flowy. Um, this was also the war period. So one of the reasons they started to adorn prints is because it was a method of escapism from the harshness of World War II. We also see a lot of Hollywood movies that like down in Rio, and they start to portray 
these exotic places where people go for vacation. And we have Carmen Miranda, who's wearing the fruit basket. So all that was kind of like this escapism from war. And it was reflected in the jazz clubs. There's some great images of Billie Holiday wearing these beautiful dresses and these prints, which was kind of crazy at the time. And early on, she was probably more wearing solid dresses. And then we start to see prints, like a printed dress in a nightclub that's very modern. And then for the men, it was their fabrications were, you know, men wore tuxedos and suits in the 1920s. That was a period of conformity. So at the beginning, jazz was about conforming in dress, meaning that all the men had to look the same. It wasn't about being showy and stand out. So if you're Louis Armstrong, you look, you fit into the band. You don't become a superstar. Then in the 30s and 40s, we start to see this influence. So they start to become more popular, like Louis Armstrong. We start to see Dizzy Gillespie, um, Charlie Parker come onto the scene and they're like gods to the fans. And so um, the fans started to mimic their dress. We know Dizzy Gillespie wearing the beret and the goatee. And then everybody, whether you're white or black, you're wearing a goatee and dark horned rimmed glasses. And then we see in the 50s and 60s, we what I call defiance which means that we start to see Miles Davis, that the jazz music moved into the avant-garde and a modern, postmodern. So we start to have electric guitars. We have the xylophones. The dress becomes casual. It's Miles Davis might be performing on stage with an open shirt or a casual knit shirt. Um, so those are kind of like the three key, key periods that I've identified of conformity influence and then defiance they kind of reject the suit the tuxedo even billy holiday starts to reject a little bit you know those evening gowns and she's wearing a ponytail in 1959 1958 a ponytail so hip and modern and she's wearing slacks so there's a couple of um images of her in studios with slacks on and that's like that was very um, modern for women at that time Yeah, Miles Davis that you brought up is such a great example because he was so formal at the start of his career. And by the end, it was bright patterns and flowing garments. And you saw society mimicking it. It changed with the music. Very cool. Well, he was a bit of a rock star too, I think. That's right. He was definitely, yeah, you saw more people kind of emulating him because he had that. He was more out there and, and perceived as more artistic as well. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Asanya Davidson. She's a fashion designer and educator, as well as Alfonso McClendon. His book is Fashion and Jazz. And they're both joining us because they'll be with Carl Anthony for his latest version of conversations about jazz and other distractions. And so I wanted to ask, when you look at pictures from the jazz era, can you immediately start like visualizing what the fabric feels like? Actually, we have an exhibition here in town and there's a, a part of the exhibition is Biba, which is from Europe, but she's she's local to, to um, us here in South Florida. And we talk a lot about, you know, rayon and the faux silk that is rayon and, and how that feels versus actual silk. So we we def- I always think of silk. I always think of silk or something like silk like like rayon when I think of dresses or, or garments and I think of specific cuts that aren't necessarily overly tight, but very um and I wouldn't want to say form fitting, but also just, you know, show, showing off a woman's figure. But I, I always think of the, uh, silk. And I, I remember a lot of fur, but not so much nowadays. But there was so much fur around um, that time period. So much fur. Like if every type, you know, fox, uh, sable, whatever you can think of. 
So those, those are things that come to mind when I think of that time period. Yeah, if there was an animal, someone was going to be wearing it. Sure. <laughs> and just to add to that, I think what I really look for in the images is what was the artist trying to convey and signify by their dress. So at the beginning of the period, like if you think of Dixieland jazz in the early 1900s, they got the, ma the male musicians were wearing casual outfits. I mean, their hats were probably how they maintained distinction from one another. So their hats became very cool. And then as they started to play in orchestras and move up to Chicago, we start to see the suit and tuxedo. So they have to conform to be accepted. In order to get a good gig, you had to have a nice suit. So they had edicts that said, you know, you must wear a blue or black suit, you must wear a tie, also, you know, to get a particular wage. And then we see in that period that I talk about of influence, we start to see the fur coats. They're portraying wealth and that they've established themselves. Remember, they're still fighting Jim Crow. They still have to walk through the back door of a jazz club. They cannot mix with the white audience. Bessie Smith often would be delivered rude marks from the audience if it was an all white audience. So all these things they had to put up with. So their garments were like armor. So they're like, you must respect me. That's what the clothes were doing. The cloths were great, but it's really, what was the meaning of the clothes? For especially for black musicians, it was armor to defy the harsh racism that they had to deal with day in and day out. And we see how a lot of them, their way of dealing, unfortunately, was moving into drugs. And that was maybe their only way of escapism of you know, trying to get some type of mental health from having to perform for these people, but then also at the same time being paid less or being treated inferior. And then we see again, the last period where they start to defy and the reason they were defying and wearing goatees and Dizzy Gillespie would wear African textiles. And what he was doing is defying and saying that, you know, I've made it and now I'm returning to my roots. And also they wanted to stop the somewhat the theft of their ideas that were then taken and made mainstream and made other people wealthy. I love so much of what you just said. And I think the phrase fashion as armor will really, really linger. That's just such a good turn of phrase. And I get it. I truly get it. Um, I'm glad you just touched on African textiles because I was wondering with both of you, you both have very global careers. And I was wondering if during your times overseas, if you saw the influence of jazz music on international fashion or vice versa. So I was in Nigeria and, I, and learning things about like um, what we call the dashiki here in Nigeria is referred to as an Angelina print. And just looking at the origin of that and realizing that in its birth, it's not actually an African print. It's a, a Dutch wax print, but that's also stolen Balinese <laughs> design. You know, like you go down the rabbit hole, you're just like, okay. But just realizing the, the connections that we've had with different countries, the influence that we've had of different musicians. And so that for me was a, a real eye-opening experience. I think jazz's influence on the world is very deliberate and strategic. It happened because we have ambassadors that traveled overseas. Some became expats. It started as early as the early 1900s with the first world war of jazz, black soldiers playing jazz overseas in Paris and different cities. And then we had the expats, some that went over there briefly and some lived, stayed there forever. I can think of Alberta Hunter, Bricktop Smith, um, having a club in Paris. 
um, Sidney Bechet played at Buckingham Palace, either I think it was in the 1920s or early teens. They were ambassadors of America, even though they weren't, you know, didn't have the same full equal rights. Um, they still represented America proudly, as well as jazz music and their um, cultural heritage. I've traveled to China, Japan, um, Taiwan, and I've always, I've been amazed at when I travel there and, you know, you go to music stores and you'll see tons of jazz. Even in Tokyo, they have a club that has Lester Young on it. And so I like to be in Tokyo and then see this respect and honor of um, Black jazz musicians is so great. The reason jazz is influential is because they paved the way and they did their work. Along with spreading the good word of jazz, they also made America shine bright. And so I always say jazz musicians are the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. They've been working at it for a long time. And jazz is that critical link between our African roots and where we're at now, which is kind of this postmodern universal music, which has no labels, which is what Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, what they were all pushing for. And that's, I think that's definitely reflected in, in the, the fashion of the times you're seeing that freedom. I have one last question for you. It might be an impossible answer, but I'm going to ask each of you to try. If you had to choose one time, all time jazz fashion icon, who would it be and why? Mine is obviously Billie Holiday, who is like my soul. You stole mine. <laughs> um, and I've been to Billie Holiday's grave and I, um, she's buried in the South Bronx. Um, and I've actually went to her last apartment. And why she resonates to me is that when she passed away, she basically had no money and she thought that no one probably loved her or thought she was important at all. I think she went to a jazz club and I think it was the um, Village Vanguard and they didn't even know who she was. This is, you know, maybe a year before she died. And you can imagine how that broke her heart. And then now to see the treatment like see all this stuff about Billie Holiday, she would be amazed. So I think she just, she overcame a tragic childhood and tough circumstances and became a, she was a genius, a virtuoso, and she fought for our rights in multiple ways. And so I try to live on and give respect to Billie and all that she did for us. Right on. And Asana, you said that was yours as well. I mean, her music is amazing. It, there's no way you can listen to it and not, um, when the kids call it the feels, you can't get the feels. But also just her her style was just so strong. It wasn't just feminine, it was just, it was very strong. And I don't know what other word to use, but it was just very forceful. And I just love looking at um, pictures of her and the garments that she wore. Even in her evolution, I think she maintained a, a very strong sense of herself. So she would probably be the first person that would come to mind immediately. In my mind, she is jazz. Right on. And and Carl, would you like to throw in your favorite? And if it's Billy, that's okay too. <laughs> I mean, I grew up with Billy Holiday in, in my house when I was a child. My father loved her. So I know most of her music, but Duke Ellington was probably my favorite. He just had a style about him that I think a lot of people followed you know, his elegance through his career. Uh, he was just a sharp-dressed man. 
I just appreciated that, you know, growing up with um, Esquire and Gentleman's Quarterly, those were the magazines that taught me how to dress, you know, what I needed to have in my wardrobe. And, you know, it was a rites of passage to know what to wear for what occasion and when to wear it. Carl Anthony's conversations about jazz and other distractions with special guests Asamia Davidson and Alfonso McClendon will stream from the Hammonds House Museum. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... A pride celebration with two prominent Atlanta queens. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The pandemic has taken the lives of millions across the globe and has also claimed the livelihood of those who haven't suffered the disease. When we think about those battling unemployment and surviving as gig workers, drag queens must be included, as 95% of their income was based on nightlife events. Ellasaurus Rex and Brigitte Bidet are two Atlanta queens who host the Wussy Magazine podcast, Good Judy. They zoom in to join us now. Welcome to City Lights. Hello. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for having us. We are thrilled to be here. Well, it is great to have you here. And I was hoping each of you could start by telling us how you got into drag. Sure. This is Ellasaurus here. I started drag because I was looking for a community and an outlet for performance. Brigitte and I both come from the dance world and I moved here for a dance company um, about 12 years ago. And I had these grand dreams of having a big dance company with a bunch of people. And then I had it and then it wasn't so much fun. So I sort of wanted to scale back and I really wanted to perform as much as I could. And so I found drag as an avenue to perform a bunch, to have a, a lot of concepts and ideas uh, fleshed out in real life. And so Ellasaurus Rex was born. Appreciate. Hmm. Similarly, um, I came from a dance background. I studied dance in college in Chicago. And I moved back and I thought I knew everything about the world and art. And so I was like, I'm going to be a radical performance artist. And then I found drag, which is kind of radical, but um, nowhere near where I envisioned myself. But it's kind of like the perfect way for me to be a performer, be flamboyant, be queer. And through that, I've been able to become like... Um, a community voice, I guess. So now we can engage people to vote in the elections and to fundraise for homeless queer youth and things like that. So it's what turned what was once kind of um, a hobby turned into a full-on career and a way for me to give back and kind of be a better person, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Advocacy, helping others, and um, 
all the while engaging in your self-expression. Yes, yes, definitely. Tell us about the name Good Judy. Who decided on the name for your podcast? Well, we threw around a bunch of names. I believe Relatively Successful was the first name we came up with, but we wanted to do something that was a little more specific to, to queer uh, culture. As you know, a Friend of Judy is a reference that people used back in the day to acknowledge other people in the queer community because they were a friend of Judy, you know, Dorothy, Judy Garland. And so it's a name that we use to call our, our best friends. They are our good Judys. So we wanted to have a playoff of words and also just acknowledge our friendship and our kinship as being drag sisters. Oh, now, the podcast was started by Wussy back in June. How would you describe Wussy Mag's publication? Wussy is amazing because it is a voice for Southern queer artists specifically, but it has since branched out to become a more national or international publication, but Atlanta is such a great place for queer people and for queer media that we sort of found each other as artists. And John Dean was really like the driving force behind Wussy's inception, but it's grown to be a platform for so many people and also a physically printed you know, piece of media, which is dying out. So it's it's a way to like, not only preserve our Southern queer voice, but to amplify it. What distinguishes your podcast from that of other queer pop culture podcasts? Well, I think one thing that we wanted to make sure is that it wasn't just your average uh, queer podcast. So yes, we are talking about uh, pop culture and we do have a lot of drag queens on and we are drag queens, but our lens is a little bit different. We are both very politically activated. We're both very community driven. On top of that, it's also, we want everyone to feel like they're talking to their friends so that we're not necessarily talking at you, but it's a conversation that, um, that you can, you know, you can talk back to us, um, you know, when you're listening and it feels like we are all just really good friends and we're, helping to create and continue community. Yeah, I think we also offer like a really nice perspective in a way that in a world that's so wannabe woke culture and these intersections of identity politics. I know a lot of big words. I took a woman's studies class one time, but <laughs> what it is is that we are so engaged in these intersectional null communities that we are able to like share our experiences in order to relate with other people who are on the fringe or who are minorities without showboating or what's the word virtue signaling. It's like, we yes. can actually offer our perspectives in a way that isn't just like kind of meeting diversity standards, which is happening a lot in media. I feel. Now, you hand out a Bad Judy Award each week. <laughs> what qualifies someone to receive the Bad Judy Award? <laughs> so we, we have a Good Judy of the Week, but we also 
the antithesis, we have the bad Judy. And that's someone who we feel like has done a bad job that week. Someone who has done, done something detrimental to our community and we feel like should be called out, not in a canceling way, but we are sort of calling attention to that behavior. Um, you know, there's a lot of them are public figures, uh, some politicians, but people who, um, who just need to, we're not punishing them, but people who, who just need to be held accountable for their actions. And so it's a fun way of saying, hey, everyone out there listening, I know we gabbed and we gossiped for a few, but also uh, pay attention to this because uh, it's really important and it affects you. But a bad Judy would not necessarily be a member of the queer community betraying the queer community, would it? If that's what happened that week, then yes, they unfortunately received the title. No one is safe. (laughs) (laughs) But, But I guess what I'm asking is a bad Judy does not have to have been a good Judy originally. Well, here's the thing is that unfortunately, a lot of unfortunate things happen to the queer community and members of the queer community, specifically Black trans lives, you know, as we're discussing that. So if any of those things or communities or parts of our world are affected by the behavior of other people, we will call it out because not everything is sunshine and rainbows, unfortunately. We don't wanna turn into a chamber of echoes where we just hate the world, but there are some things that need to be called out and what better way to like form an opinion about something than through the mouths of two fabulous drag queens. (laughs) (laughs) Each week on the Good Judy podcast, you talk with a different person in the queer, drag, or trans community. How do you select your guests? Well, that's another thing I was going to say about how the name came about, because Relatively Successful was a joke about how we have so many friends who are famous, or a little more famous than us, I should say. And so (laughs) hearing their stories can inspire other people. It inspires us, uh, for sure. So we we want to showcase not only the people that came up through our scene who we literally saw go from zero to hero, but (sighs) also people who are doing amazing things and happen to be queer. Like Shamir is an amazing musician that actually lives in Las Vegas, but they were on the show because they've been on the cover of Wussy magazine, I believe. So it's through people that we've worked with and also through people that we want to connect with more and and share our platform to get other people in the know about what they're doing. You know, we also have just put out a wish list and we've been so lucky that so many people have said yes. We don't really have a follow. We have more of a following now, but beginning, we were using those connections that we've made from Mag people that um, we've booked and performed and Atlanta, and so far we've gotten some really amazing people to to say yes and to be involved. And we are just kind of shooting for the stars and people are are buying it, they, they love it. And so we've been so grateful. Would you tell us about the range of topics you address? 
Yes, we basically get a ton of information from social media and obviously mainstream media outlets. But we discuss pop culture, anything from like Netflix to the potential World War Three will be discussed <laughs> on our show because again, it, it reminded me one time of when I was little and used to pick up the phone back when everyone had a house phone, you could pick it up from the other room and listen to people's conversations. Mm-hmm. And that kind of is the vibe of the good Judy podcast, because it's like, you're catching up with your good Judy's and you're like, did you hear about that happened? And oh my God, this queen was doing this. So it is a way to connected people we were so isolated in 2020 it was also a way for us to be MCs again because we host a lot of our shows and so we're used to connecting with people through our oral expression (laughs) (laughs) definitely and it's also we try to start every episode as genuinely as we possibly can with how are you and sort of that feeds into the rest of the conversation so some weeks we're really involved with, with the news stories and some weeks we have to take a break and sort of uh, disappear into fantasy land and watch a bunch of Netflix or consume uh, a different type of media. So it varies differently. Yeah. For someone who is not a part of the queer or drag community, how can the Good Judy podcast be a good resource? Well, I talk about this a lot. Being a Black queer person from the South, I feel like I do have a perspective that sheds light on on what it means to to be that person right now. And I'm so lucky that I have a a platform that uh, projects that voice out there because it's so important. I feel like we have a platform. So it's so important to, to be an advocate not only for myself, for my community, but for other marginalized communities. And I hope that, that people get that from, from listening. We have such a specific perspective, but I feel like it applies to several groups. I'm curious about the feedback to your podcast, because I would think it would be very positive from people in the LGBTQ plus community in terms of having a safe space. What kind of response have you gotten? It's been really great. And we were doing it as a way to send out things for people to have in this lonely time. And it's created another kind of virtual space for people. And we have a Patreon that people can subscribe to for as little as for as little as $1 a month, you can feed a drag queen, but it's $2. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we produce extra content for them and people leave ratings on Apple podcasts. So if you're listening and want to do that, Hey, and we've also branched out and Wussy has several other podcasts. So we're creating like our own little queer media network in a way. Elisaurus Rex and Brigitte Bidet are two Atlanta queens who host the Wussy Magazine podcast, Good Judy. You can hear their latest episodes on Apple Podcast. Just ahead, 
a sculpture unveiled to honor the memory of enslaved people living in 19th century Marietta, Georgia. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just a few months ago in March, the Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society partnered with Kennesaw State University's School of Art and Design to create a new garden sculpture at the William Root House in Marietta. This sculpture will honor the memory of enslaved people living in Marietta before the end of the Civil War. It's now set to be unveiled this Saturday. Before the sculpture was finished and fundraising was still in the works, I spoke with Trevor Beeman, the executive director of Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society, and sculptor Paige Birch, the Master Craftsman Program Director at KSU, about the William Root House and the commemorative art. Trevor began with the history of the Root family. So William and Hannah were early settlers in Cobb County. They both arrived in the 1830s, and they moved to Marietta, and William was the first druggist in Marietta. And their home, portions of it date to the 1830s, but the earliest date we can peg on them living there is 1845. Their home today is the oldest home remaining in downtown Marietta, and it's been preserved and restored back to its 1860s appearance as a house museum. How has the house changed over time? And actually, how did Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society acquire it for restoration? The house originally was on Church Street, right across from St. James Church. And after the Root family moved out of the house in the 1890s, in 1893, it was moved to build the first public library in Cobb County, the Clark Library. And so it was moved to the back of that lot and then was converted into apartments during World War II for workers at the Bell Bomber plant. And then it was just kind of used as an apartment building and then kind of set empty for a few decades. And then in 1989, it was going to be demolished for a parking lot. And that's when Cobb Landmarks was able to step in and relocate the house a block from that location and restore it back to its original condition. Would you talk about the plants and herbs in the garden and their connection to William Root's practice? 
Sure. William, being a, a druggist, he didn't receive any formal training. There wasn't like any schooling like that in this part of Georgia. And so he just would have read uh, medical journals and things like that. And he actually got into the business as an internship with a drugstore owner. It was almost like a chain of drugstores. And so William would open up franchises for him. And the store he opened in Marietta was a franchise for this man. And William ended up buying it out and making it his own drugstore. But he sold all kinds of things like a drugstore today, medicines, but also, you know, hardware and stationery and things like that. But a lot of the medicines, if they weren't patent medicines, they could have been things that would have been homeopathic. So he would have had a pretty substantial herb garden. And so the gardens at the root house, all the plants have been researched for availability to a middle-class family in Marietta, Georgia during that time period. The plants are treated just like any other object in the museum collection. And how did this new garden project come about? I grew up at the Root House. I started volunteering when I was 12. And when I started there, they really focused on the parents, you know, William and Hannah. And part of what I wanted to do as a kid even was to incorporate the children's stories, the Root children. And then about six years ago, I was hired as executive director. And I just wanted to continue growing those stories at the Root House. And so part of it was the story of the enslaved people that lived at the Root House and lived in Marietta. And there just really hadn't been much research done. Part of this expansion was to bring in a cabin, which would have represented the slave dwelling that was on the property. And we know from insurance records, all the outbuildings that were on the property and where they were located and roughly what size they were, construction materials. We were donated an 1830s log cabin from Cobb County, and it was in Powder Springs. We had to relocate it to the root house. And when we did that, we expanded the gardens. And part of that expansion we included was a garden that would have had plants that would have been traditionally grown by enslaved individuals. That part of the property is really important to telling the full story about what happened at the root house. And so the, the sculpture idea was kind of a way to augment that in a really creative and meaningful way. Paige, would you talk about creating the sculpture? I read you're doing this with 3D technology. Yes. Trevor approached me with a really solid idea of what he wanted in the sculpture. They wanted it to be a figurative memorial sculpture, but they wanted it to sort of mimic the way the enslaved people were treated. You know, they wanted them only to be seen when they wanted to be seen. So we have some really pretty excellent 3D scanning technology. So we had a model come in and she was wearing period appropriate clothing. We 3D scanned her, created a digital file, and we have 3D prints of that model. And so we can scale that to any size that we need to. What we're able to do is go into some of these programs that we have, these 3D modeling programs, and slice it into individual layers so what we're going to be doing is having each layer of a profile cut out, and then it's going to be made out of a material called weathering steel, which is going to rust. And the rust actually, instead of being a cancerous rust, it's going to preserve the steel. And so when you look at it head on, it's just going to look like a set of vertical lines. But when you look at it from a three-quarter or a profile view, it's actually going to resemble this figure the more you get into the profile of it. At this point, the whole thing is being done through digital technology. And once we have all the individual pieces made up into files, then we can go ahead and cut these pieces out and begin to weld the pieces together. Who is the woman you scanned? 
The woman we scanned is Misha Harp, and she's a local interpreter, but she specializes in food history. We have a, a working 1850s cast iron stove, so she's come and done some cooking demonstrations in the kitchen. And so I approached her about the project and kind of explained what we were looking for and if she thought it was something that would be meaningful for her to be a part of, and, and she agreed. It was an unusual process to scan an entire person that I don't think they had done that quite yet at KSU. What's the symbolism of the sculpture in the courtyard? The way Paige describes the construction, it will be these thin vertical strips of metal. And so when you approach the statue, you actually won't even really be able to tell that it's there. And I almost want people to be surprised when they do finally notice it and the symbolism that this enslaved population was an enormous population in Marietta. Almost 45% of the individuals living in Marietta were enslaved during 1860. And so I want people to almost be surprised that, you know, these people were here and they were present, but that nobody recorded their names, nobody recorded their histories. I, I just wanted it to be a really meaningful experience for people. Recently, Civil War era letters were donated to Cobb Landmarks, and these family papers and newly discovered public documents talk about enslaved individuals who lived on the property. Not much research had been done, and part of that was that there wasn't a lot of research available easily in the 1980s and 90s when the house was first moved. But also just typically, house museums in the past, I think, tended to present history almost unrealistically. It, the rooms were always perfectly assembled and everything was clean and they told happy stories. And for me, I wanted to tell all the stories because you know life was messy back then, just like it is today. And for visitors, I think it's a little more relatable for them. We explore PTSD and suicide and child abandonment with the family. And so part of what happened in Marietta was also slavery. I even was ignorant of the extent in Marietta. Marietta was really unusual once we started doing the research, the number of enslaved people. It didn't really make sense um, because in this part of Georgia, there weren't plantations. Traditional cash crops didn't grow that well up here. And so why were these numbers so high comparatively? And what we found was Marietta very early on was settled by a lot of wealthy planters from Savannah and Charleston who would come up to Marietta. They considered it a summer resort. It was the mountains to them. And so there were fresh water mineral springs and hotels that were built and entertainment venues. And a lot of them built vacation homes. And part of what they brought with them was this culture of enslaved house servants, domestic slaves. When you look at the population of Marietta, that's really what most of these enslaved people would have been doing. So when we looked at the Root family, it was a family of six with four enslaved individuals. And when you look at the city in general, it's 60% white and 40% black at that time. And so it follows that fairly closely. We knew from the census that they had four enslaved individuals. We didn't know very much about them. The one trail that we had was when we followed the census after the war, there was a, a house servant named Elsie Blake. And when you followed her back into the 1860 and 1850 census or slave schedule, the ages match up. And so we felt fairly confident that that was probably the same person. It wasn't unusual after emancipation for enslaved individuals to stay and work with the family as an employee at that point. And then the letters came from a root family descendant and their Civil War era letters that mention a man named Lal very often L-A-L-L, -L, asking him to complete different tasks or reminding him to do things. And so we searched Lal, and we were able to find a Lal Burge in Bartow County in Marietta and found a Dr. Lorenzo Burge living in Marietta. 
in the 1850s, and he was from Philadelphia, which is the same city that William Root came from. So William being a pharmacist and Lorenzo being a doctor, both from Philadelphia, we felt fairly confident that they probably knew each other, and that's maybe where Law came from. And Law registered to vote. Yes, which was very exciting to find that and see because it's very difficult to find anything about these individuals. And then to see that he was able to move away and register to vote was really exciting to find. Trevor Beeman, executive director of Cobb Landmarks and Historical Society, with sculptor Paige Birch, the Master Craftsman Program Director at Kennesaw State University. The sculpture will be unveiled at the William Root House in Marietta this Saturday at 11 a.m., part of their Juneteenth festivities that day. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Fires in the Mirror. Actor-director January Lavoie will tell us about her upcoming performance of Anna DeVere Smith's stunning one-woman show from Theatrical Outfit. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer. And Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and archived shows at wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.